episode 42 of Off Script with Trish Glose. Intimate interviews and fun conversations with interesting people. In front of my microphone today is Carolyn Kingsnorth. Hello, Carolyn. Thank you for joining me. Well, hello, Trish. A couple of redheads in, yes. the, in the podcast room today. I, I like it. I gather that we're gradually fading out of the gene pool. No, no, <laughs> I refuse. My nephew is just a really hot red hair. I mean, he's just, it's awesome. His red hair is just awesome. I love it. Yeah, same here. So you work, um, well, you're, you don't, you're retired, actually. I am retired. Okay, so what do you do right now for the city of Jacksonville? Actually, uh, well, that's a good question because I don't really work for the city. Right. I'm president of Historic Jacksonville, Inc., and what we do, we work with the city. Our mission is to bring the old buildings into, in Jacksonville into life mm -hmm. through programs, events, activities, because otherwise, when people come to town to see the history, all they really see are old buildings with names and dates on them. And what does that mean? And Yeah, exactly. What does that mean? And so what we're trying to do is share the stories of the people who live there and what their life was like. And we do it through a number of things. And we work directly with the city in managing the Beekman House, mm -hmm. which is the 1873 home of Cornelius Beekman and his family. And Beekman was probably the wealthiest and most prominent of Jacksonville's pioneer, pioneers. Yes, yes. yes. Um, he came to Jacksonville as an express rider. And he, he then, when the express company went out of business, he set up Beekman's Express and bought a safe. And that became the first bank in the Pacific Northwest. Right. It was the first one north of San Francisco. This was 1856. Wow. And, yeah, from there he built a, an, a business empire of banking, real estate, mining, insurance, you name it. Okay. Well, we're going to talk a lot about your involvement with the town of Jacksonville, because um, I just love the history of Jacksonville. But first, uh, where are you from originally? I'm originally from a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, you're a southern girl, too? I am. I am. Okay, so I was born in Albany, Georgia. Were you really? Yeah, and lived in South Carolina until I was 16. Well, I was born in Decatur, which is just, well, yes. like I said, between Atlanta and Stone Mountain. Right. So, How yeah. long do you live in Georgia? Um, I lived there until I went off to college, okay. and then I came back for a couple of years after college okay. to work. So what was growing up in Georgia like? Humid. <laughs> Humid, yes. Humid with mosquitoes. Um, uh, it was... It was interesting because later on, I worked for an advertising company. Uh, I actually was involved in Jimmy Carter's first campaign for governor of Georgia. Mm. Um, but the deal was there was Atlanta and there was Georgia, and never the twain would meet. Interesting. <laughs> okay. So it was there. There was a dichotomy, and I found that. I mean, one of the reasons I didn't stay. Well, I used to say I'm related to half the half of Georgia and most of the East Coast. Amen. And, and if I could swim better, I'd be in Hawaii. Um, <laughs> it was like, you know, I could go out on a date on Saturday night and hear about it from my cousin across town on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. um, but it was more what the expectations were for a Southern woman. Okay. Meaning what? Um, Let's put it this way. I haven't been real good at being subservient. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm picking up what you're laying down, <laughs> Carolyn. Well, let's go back just a little bit. Childhood. Did you grow up with siblings? No, I'm an only child. You're an only child. Okay. I have, 
I can't tell you how many first cousins, most of who lived with us at one time or another, and mm-hmm. most of who think that I'm, I'm their little sister. Well, my <laughs> my first cousin is like my little sister. In yeah. fact, that's what I call her. So yeah. we, you know, she's nine years younger than I am, but we were so close that extended family is not really extended. Exactly. And my closest one is six years younger. And, mm-hmm. you know, we try, I, try, I try to get together with her whenever I can. Mm-hmm. So um, you stayed in Georgia, Decatur, until 18, till you graduated high school? Until I graduated high school, and okay. then I went to college. Okay, what did you study in college? I studied history. Look at you. Well, that explains. The pieces are coming together well, for I finally, me. I finally found a use for my BA. <laughs> awesome. And what was that like? What college, first of all? Uh, Randolph-Macon Woman's College in Lynchburg, Virginia. Oh, goodness. It was named, Lynchburg was, you want my little spiel, my history spiel? Please. It was named after Mr. Lynch, who operated the first ferry crossing across the James River. It was the site of the first lynching in the United States. It was a truly progressive Southern community. And there was even a plaque to commemorate the occasion. For the lynching, yep, and so they kept the name Lynchburg. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Well, it was it was it was the name after the person, Mr. right? Lynch. Still, um, no. Actually, it was a very interesting experience for me. The college was very different. The mm-hmm. college was actually quite liberal. Um, I had wanted to go to Vassar. My father would not let me cross the Mason Dixon line. <laughs> True Southern man. (laughs) So it was how far away can I get from Atlanta without crossing the Mason-Dixon line? So it was sort of between Randolph-Macon and Sophie Newcomb. Um, Okay. And so Randolph-Macon. But it it was a very difficult experience for me because it was a woman's college, and it was also a very rewarding experience for me. In part, I had found um, growing up, most of my brownie points came from good academics, from okay. being smart. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I found when I got to high school that suddenly the girls stopped raising their hands. They got a case of what I used to call the stupids. And it was, it was like my own, I felt like only my, my only real academic competition was guys. Okay, yeah. And so it took me going to this woman's college to learn to really admire and appreciate women. Mm-hmm. And they're smarts. And they're smarts. So your mom and dad, strict household? Um, yes and Classic no. Classic Southern household? Uh, yes and no. They were probably the heads of both sides of the family. Um, I grew up on what will the neighbors think. And the next door neighbors were two aunts, my grandmother and a cousin, who were probably the biggest gossips in the neighborhood. <laughs> so... So, I mean, it was, it was at a time when neighbors looked out for each other. Yes. You know, I mean, I could, I could, we could be out playing till any time at night mm-hmm. and a whistle would get us home kind of mm-hmm. thing or a call. Um, you, it was like you knew you were either at the house next door playing softball or two houses down doing ghost stories at night or mm-hmm. putting on a play or... It was, it was that kind of yes. community. Um, my grandmother still lives in the small town that she's lived f- for decades. And it's it's sort of the same. You know, who really needs, like, a newsletter? Because everybody talks. <laughs> everybody knows what's going on. Everybody yes. knows what's going on. And at the same time, though, if someone is sick or maybe just released from the hospital for something, they take care of each other. Absolutely. And there are no questions asked. And it's almost if you don't allow them to help, they're offended. 
That's probably yes, that's probably true. Yeah, if you refuse their help, it's just they're they're offended by it. And there's something about that that helping your neighbor. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I just we don't see that a lot really anymore. We kind of are we don't even like want to say hello to our neighbors. I know. Well, we spend so much time looking at our phone instead. Mm, good point. Yeah. I'm guilty of that for sure. <laughs> so. so, this woman's college really I mean, it sounds like it didn't change your life, but it sounds like it was definitely a pivotal moment for you. It was it was a defining point, most definitely. And I still have very good friends from my mm. college days. That's amazing. So you graduate with um, a degree in history. A degree in history, a BA in history. What did you want to do with that? Um, I had no idea. <laughs> Honest? I mean, it, it's, it's, you come out, it was at the time you come out with a bachelor's in arts, BA, and you are highly trainable but experienced in nothing. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a, there's a little bit of you've learned to think and you've learned to problem solve. So there are lots of things you could do. It's more about convincing people that you can. Okay. Did you, being in this woman's college, did you ever miss being around dudes, young dudes your age? Uh, no, we, there were, because <laughs> nope. you, you have to understand that um, Virginia had, had uh, of course, they were practicing segregation at the time, but they also had a different kind of segregation. They kept the men away from the women. Yeah, when was so this, Carolyn? This was the 60s, Okay. late 60s. And so what you have in Virginia, you have men's colleges and you have women's colleges. Exactly. That was when the University of Virginia was all male. Wow. So, yeah, so you, you dated. I mean, yeah. You, but you got to spend the week studying and then the weekends playing. Mm-hmm. Probably <laughs> kept you out of trouble a little bit. A little, just a little bit. <laughs> just a little <laughs> wee bit. A little bit. Okay, so you graduate, you have this degree. What comes next? Um, I go to New York. Oh, look at you. <laughs> what did your dad think about that? Um, he didn't have much say in it, really, I guess. Well, he had. He had um, his point of view had changed a bit during my years at college because I did my junior year in England at the University of London. Mm-hmm. And he was very much against it. My mother thought, oh, this is wonderful. My daughter's going to study abroad. <laughs> my father's going to, what do you want to go live among foreigners for? There's nothing better than white American Southern Protestants. <laughs> and, but by the time I was, it was time for me to, to leave, he was, um, my daughter is studying abroad. Oh, and, look at that. And my mother's, my baby daughter's leaving. I'm never going to see her again. They switched. <laughs> they totally switched. I love that. So um, you studied in England just, and how was that? What was that experience like? Um, I, was, I was reading history at University College, which is the oldest college in the University of London. It was a fascinating experience um, because of the way they're, program is set up for foreign students and that you don't have tutorials, you just sit lectures and then you take tests at the end of the semester. And so I kind of, all you had to do in terms of lectures, because these are lecture halls with 200 people in them, you just have to get the professor to sign off at the end. Hmm. And um, I looked at it from, I have to admit, I cheated. I'm not, I didn't cheat, but I looked at it from the standpoint you know, they're going to think I'm American, that whatever I do is going to be good enough to pass in America, so they're going to pass me, because it was strictly on a pass-fail basis for my college anyway. So I did a lot of traveling. I did a lot of exploring. I met a lot of really interesting people. Mm-hmm. Um, I 
one of the reasons I went, and it was something that was probably one of the most meaningful things for it, it was seeing history as reality, not just words on a printed page. Mm. Oh, for sure, especially there. Exactly. Wow. And I think you probably got more out of that traveling than being in a lecture hall. Absolutely. And I, I used the opportunity to travel around England. I went to Spain and Portugal. I did time in France, Germany. I went to Russia. I went summer, wow. summer in Greece and Italy. So, yes. Fun. Abs it was. It was a lot of fun. That sounds amazing. So you come home, you graduate. Let's get back to New York. You moved to New York. Why? Why New York oh. City? Uh, I got a job at Bonwit Teller as an assistant buyer in the accessories department. Look at you. Yeah. With I, your history degree. <laughs> with my history degree. I bought hats. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. How long did that job last? Um, well, it lasted. They merged the departments after about a year and a half. And I went into the uh, public relations department as the assistant director of, uh, assistant to the director of public relations. Okay. And um, that, that lasted for, I'm going to say, probably another nine months. Um, she is no longer alive, so I can say. Uh, she was someone who micromanaged. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, this job doesn't take two of us to do it. One of us is superfluous. Mm. Mm. And so at that point, I, I let quit and went back to Atlanta. Okay. And I'd actually thought I was going to go to law school, but it was midterm, so I couldn't enter until the following fall. Okay. And so I went to work for another advertising agency. Okay. Doing what there? Um, doing there, I was an assistant to account managers. And let's see, we... I was really good at marketing Jim Dandy grits and dog food. Mm, grits. Oh, yes, grits. Are you a fan of grits? Actually, if you put enough salt, pepper, butter, cheese, and other things in them, they're fit to eat. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> that's the only way to eat them. Um, in fact, that's what we bought in my in my household, in my grandma's household, was Jim, Jim, Dandy, Jim Dandy Grits. Jim Dandy Grits. Yep. Amen. Um, so, so I was there for uh, maybe a year, and then I went to an, a, another advertising agency, Rafshi, and I became their PR director. Okay. So this was starting to be kind of the career for you, public relations? Marketing, marketing, public relations. Okay. I, I moved more into marketing. Um, I had some fun public relations clients at mm -hmm. Raf Shun. Like I said, the Jimmy, Jimmy Carter was good, but had um, a chain of movie theaters mm. that was, was a client. And so I got to meet a lot of movie stars. Really? Who were, yes, who were doing personal appearance tours. Like who? Oh, my first one was um, Gene Kelly. No way. Oh, yes. He was, he was probably the nicest person under the sun. And I had never done it before. And so he walked me through it. Aw. Oh, yeah. That's so sweet. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I had people like, uh, well, I had Rock Hudson there for, uh, yeah, for a world premiere. And I found that he would get very nervous before interviews. And so at one, one station, I was sitting, we were waiting to go in. I was sitting there working a crossword puzzle. Mm -hmm. And I found him over my shoulder. And he's going, it's, it's that. And so I found that before an interview, I could sit him down with a book of crossword puzzles, and he would sit there working them so he didn't have time to get nervous. He would just calm down the a interview. little bit. Mm -hmm. How fun. Yeah, so that was fun. I mean, I had some people you never heard. My, my favorite was probably Danny Mann, who was, um, he was a very well-known director at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, 
we were, he was Jewish. We were comparing what it was like growing up in a Southern clan versus growing up in a Jewish family. And a little different. A little deliberate still. And, and so we went to Six Flags Magic Mountain and mm-hmm. rode all the rides. I mean, just, it was, it was, those were some fun times. There were, okay. there were some fun things we did. Uh, let's talk about Jimmy Carter. Yes. You helped with that campaign? I, yes. I, well, I helped with the public relations. Of course, he had the full campaign staff, but uh, we would place ads and whatnot for him for that. Okay. And met most of the Carter family. They were all just down to earth, nice mm-hmm. as could be. Well, they're from Georgia. They're what? from Georgia. What else? Yeah. How, how else can you be? I, I love that. Um, so how did you make the move then? I mean, how long were you in Atlanta working for these ad agencies? I was there for a couple of years, and um, that's when I met my first husband. Okay. He was um, the amusement editor for the Houston Post, and he was there actually for the world premiere that had Rock Hudson there. Okay. And so that's where I met him. Okay. And you guys lived in Atlanta or? Houston. Houston. Oh, you moved to Houston. I moved to Houston. Made okay. It. Yep. I was going to start to say his... his he did. He was. He'd grown up in Houston, mm-hmm. and um, he was not overly fond of it. I found it fascinating. I found particularly the public plazas with the public art was mm-hmm. wonderful, mm-hmm. and some of the the architecture that was being done there. Um, at the same time, there was no zoning, and you, the as you talk about humidity and temperature in Atlanta. Houston, you go from your air-conditioned house to your air-conditioned car to your air-conditioned office. Mm-hmm. Um, but my husband was was ready to leave. Okay. And Did so, you leave? Yep, we went to San Francisco. Wow, that's a jump. He, well, well, he wanted to become the great American writer. And um, I had lived in New York. I'd lived in Bos- or I'd been in Boston. And I had to be a place where I could work. And had been, he wanted a place that would inspire him. Okay. And he said Houston did lack the inspiration. So that was why San Francisco. There's a lot of inspiration in San There's Francisco. There's a lot of inspiration. How long were you guys there? Um, let's see. We moved there 73, moved to Los Angeles January 1st of 76. Okay. And so did he write? He did. Write some books? Did they get published? He wrote a book. Uh, no, in fact, he left me with the manuscript. Um I think what he did was the writing was a catharsis for him. He wrote his dark side. I had a hard time liking the storyline or the characters, but because I was the marketing person, he expected me to market it. I felt like a mouseketeer with great big, you know, marketeer with great big ears. Mm-hmm. Didn't work. Um, and so I had, at that point, I, I had looked for what job would have, you know, make money. Okay. Our newscast right. and getting ready to start. Um, so, when you said he left you with the manuscript, manuscript, what does that mean? Well, when we divorced, he didn't even take it with him. But that we, we we were married for fourteen years. Okay. Now I was I wound I wound up going to work for air freight forwarders, mm-hmm. and that was what transferred me to Los Angeles. I became the PR director down there. Okay. And um, but it, it just wound up that he was a. I had married lifestyle, and I had to live with the person. Mm-hmm. And um, I was still, he, was, he is still a fascinating man. What do you mean you married the lifestyle? 
Well, he was he was amusements editor of the Houston Post. So our lifestyle consisted of going to movies, going mm. going to a theater, going to the symphony, going to the ballet, going on junkets, press junkets to meet movie stars. I used to I used to string for the Atlanta Constitution and Journal uh, because they couldn't they were they were not allowed to take junkets, and I could go with him and follow the stories for them. Okay, so it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. It was great. Um, and then why the divorce? Was it just not working out? Um, I had. It just wasn't working out. Mm-hmm. Um, he would, he, as I said, I would, I'd be tempted to walk out the door a number of times, and then he'd say something really interesting. It's like, well, that was interesting. Maybe I'll stick around a little while longer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I mean, he's a very intelligent man, right. very knowledgeable. Uh, so um, it would just came probably down to incompatibility. Mm-hmm. And so you're in L.A. for a while then, working? I was in L.A. for close to 30 years. Wow. Okay. Long time. Long time. I moved up here. Well, we moved up here in 2003. Who's we? My second husband and okay. I. Okay. And is second husband still husband? No, no. I'm a widow now. Okay. And so you, you and your second husband get married when? Uh, 1997. Okay. Um, and what did he do? He was um, trained as a mechanical engineer, graduated at MIT and Northwestern, but smarty pants, uh, smarty pants. But basically, he ran manufacturing companies. Okay, and so you guys moved up to Southern Oregon. We did together. When was that? Uh, uh, two thousand three. Okay, and so you said you're a widow now. I'm a widow. So what happened to him? Uh, he passed. Well, he, we had, we were, we were having a lot of fun, doing well, but he uh, basically came down with multiple myeloma. And uh, we had a couple of bone marrow stem cell transplants mm. during which you lose your immune system, and he didn't survive the second one. When, uh, when was that? This last fall. Oh, gosh, Carolyn. Yeah, he died in October. Oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. So it's, you know, it was a long four years. Yeah, he battled that for four mm-hmm. years. Yes. Wow. Was he, well, tell me about him. Um, Personality. He put up with me. <laughs> That was that was a big brownie point right there. <laughs> um, I would the best description I can tell you is that he was a gentleman and a gentle man. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. Um, do you think if he didn't get sick, did you feel like this this is this is my guy? Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. Mm-hmm. No, we we had fun together. He was extremely supportive. Uh, when I owned the Jacksonville Review newspaper, he was my paper boy. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so cute. <laughs> he was. And uh, I have great pictures when we were doing the Jacksonville Boosters Club yard sale. Um, he was the one responsible for picking up all the stuff from everybody was donating. And then we'd have it in a storage shed. And he would be the one organizing everybody, all the truckers, mm-hmm. to bring it over to wherever we were setting up. So he was known as the mother trucker. Stop. <laughs> he was. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. Um, so when he, you know, you obviously, him getting sick, you're prepared for somewhat. Like, this This is ultimately going to take this man that you love. Yes, but you don't expect it that soon. That's exactly where I was going with yeah. that. Even though you know maybe somewhere in your heart, in the back of your mind, it's coming, it just still, it's... Well, you know what they said, the first part of grieving is denial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. So um, I probably did four years of denial. Four years? Yeah. Yeah. When did you think you were like, when did the acceptance part come for you? 
Um, I think I did a lot of grieving during that four years. Uh, um, I think probably the anger part came when after everything we went through, after everything he went through, he doesn't die from the cancer, he dies from pneumonia. Oh. It's like, pneumonia? <laughs> of all things. Of all things. Mm -hmm. So, yes. I think that's um, honestly losing someone that close to you you know, death doesn't necessarily scare me so much, but losing someone that I love mm -hmm. scares me. And I'm mostly as scared of the quiet. There's a yes and no on that for me. Um, he was in the hospital so much during the last four years, but I also spent four years being single between marriages. Mm -hmm. So I had some training in being on my own. You, you knew what that felt like. I knew what it felt like. Okay, so you're in Jacksonville now, and how do you get involved with sort of what you're doing, I guess, being a part of the history of this beautiful town? Um, well, we followed friends up here, followed friends who followed friends who followed mm -hmm. friends. Right. Um, and when we first arrived, uh, my friend said she was going through all of the clubs and organizations in town. And she says, you want to be a member of this one. You want to be a member of that one. Forget that one. You won't like it. You have to be a member of this one. And that was the Jacksonville Boosters Club. Okay. And so I got involved with that initially and um, then eventually became president. And But then also during that period of time, I was seeing a lot of things going on in town, and people weren't aware of it. And after the fact, it would be, how did that happen? When did that happen? Mm -hmm. um, and so that was one of the reasons I bought the newspaper, to try to at least cover what was going on, because also I live right outside of town, so I don't get a voice. I don't get a vote. So this is my way of putting my two cents worth in. <laughs> uh, and so in part, in just all the people I met, the interviews I did, the things I learned about Jacksonville in the process got me back into the history mode. I love it. A few podcasts ago, I don't know if you actually saw it, um, we interviewed Larry. Of course. I know Larry really well, and I did see it, yes. Oh, there. I don't know what it is about Larry, and I think it's probably his years of being a teacher. Yeah. He has the knack for grabbing you and captivate. Like, he just captivates you. Oh, absolutely. And the kids, especially the kids. Well, I'm a 12-year-old inside, so <laughs> there's probably something to be said about that. Larry has a stories out the wazoo. <laughs> I know, and he has this great humor that you don't expect him to be funny, and he doesn't really even think he's funny, but he's just naturally funny. It's a little bit of a self-deprecating humor, too, yes. so yes, yes. And I just, I look at you and some of the other characters in Jacksonville and Larry, and I mean, how lucky is this town that you have this group of people who are trying to just keep things going and moving? Well, one of our former city administrators um, said that Jacksonville probably had more volunteer activity, or it was the volunteers that got things mm -hmm. done more than any other town in Oregon. Yeah.
And I mean that that you can look at the Brit trails and how the Brit oh, yes. trails were saved years ago. Oh, absolutely! But it's the all the things that the Jacksonville Boosters Club do, or the foundation does, that the Garden Club does, that the Friends of Jacksonville's Historic Cemetery do, that Historic Jacksonville does. Mm -hmm. These are all volunteer organizations, totally volunteer organizations. Right, and um, even as a young reporter, some of the big stories I was covering. Um, the funding, the county funding for the Jacksonville Museum, all right. of these things were just getting cut and cut, mm -hmm. and the museum had to close down, and all of this incredible history about how this place was settled. Well, that was one of the things that got us going initially, um, that was the museum having to close, mm -hmm. and it was that Southern Oregon Historical Society, whom I love and I'm on their board, um, they could not afford to keep the buildings, and Jacksonville could not afford to lose them. So that was when we first formed a group to keep the buildings open and manage them mm -hmm. and try to, again, to bring them back to life with yeah. the programming. For sure, and it's something you look at and maybe in the moment as a young person, uh, you don't really care about it, but then a few years later, when it's not there anymore, that's when we really miss it. Absolutely. Well, the visitor center swears that they get two or three people a week or plus two or three phone calls asking where the museum is. Mm. I keep saying we have two museums. One's called the Beekman House, one's called the Beekman Bank, and they are wonderful museums. Um, but that's one of the goals of the Southern Oregon Historical Society is to have a museum again. Okay, and your job specifically right now, you're trying to get some of these historic buildings in Jacksonville really telling their story. So when people oh. come and visit, they can just visit and get the story. Absolutely. But we're trying to tell them in fun ways and um, ways that will be more interesting. I think most of us grew up learning history as names, dates, places, and battles. Mm -hmm. You memorize it for the test, you regurgitate it, and you promptly forget it. And that's not what history is. Like I said earlier, it's the people and their stories. And that's what we're trying to share. So we're doing it through um, things like at the Beekman House. We have 1932 Living History, where you can step back into Depression-era Jacksonville and interact with Beekman family members and friends and talk with them about what's going on in the 1930s, what's happening in the country, what it was like growing up in the late 1800s. Um, we're doing our, our Secrets and Mysteries of the Beekman Bank right now, candlelit tours where you can explore secrets that were lost with the last Beekman family member. Yes. Um, talking with uh, some of the folks just doing stories on Jacksonville, um, the town's kind of haunted a little oh, bit. Well, that's one of the things that we started about three years ago, and this will either be our fourth or fifth year now in the summer. We're offering Jacksonville Haunted History walking tours because most of the buildings are haunted, and they are um, the stories we tell about the buildings. I mean, we share the history of the building, so they're not they're not really ghost tours. We share the history of the building, and we share the stories of the spirits who still reside there. And these are stories that we have gotten from individuals who have lived in the buildings, mm -hmm. who have owned the buildings, occupied the buildings, who have experienced them. Mm -hmm. So these are not things we're making up. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I, I find I can believe in ghosts. Okay. Um, I, can, I can actually believe scientifically. Okay. Uh, on the basis that we know that matter can become energy and energy can become matter. Mm -hmm. 
And I know that most of the memories that I have or are, that have stayed with me are associated with strong emotion. Mm -hmm. So I can certainly appreciate how there might have been something in someone's life that had involved so much, or death, that involved so much emotion that the energy lingered. And mm -hmm. it could even take, you know, take a material form at times. Interesting. Did you ever experience that with your husband? Not with my husband. I did with my mother. Really? Mm -hmm. Tell me that story. Um, this was after after she died. It was in Atlanta, and I had, we had come back home to uh, L.A. and come in the house, and I'm seeing I, I had two cats. And I'm seeing kitty litter on the floor and glass on the floor and water. And it's like, what's going on? And then I look up and we had a big plate glass window in the back of the house. Mm -hmm. And there's this perfect imprint of a dove that has come through it. It's broken through the window. And I look around and I find on one of the, uh, our tour shares, there was, a, it was a, ho a homing pigeon, a homing dove. Mm -hmm. And based on the mess, it had been living off the cat food and water and going back and forth to the tour share and had been there about since the death time of my mother's funeral. Interesting. And when we were able to get a towel over it and catch it, I saw it was banded, so it was a homing dog. And when we released it, and I was able to say, Mother, I'm okay. Oh, I love that. That's so, so sweet. Yeah. It's interesting. I've had a couple of experiences like that with pets. Um, yeah. My, We just had to put down our dog, Mia, last year. Devastating. Like, oh, yes. And it, it still, it, it just, it kills me still. And I'm a hot mess. Uh, the day we had to put her down, I'm a hot mess for weeks after. Mm. But I'm getting my hair done the very next day. It was an uh, appointment that I, I couldn't break, whatever. Right. And... I'm sitting in the chair, and my dog's name was Mia. Mm -hmm. And my hairdresser, someone walked in, this beautiful woman walked in behind her, and my hairdresser goes, um, hi, Mia. The woman's name was Mia. Mia. And I, Mia's not a very common name. Nope. And I'm just sitting there getting my hair blow dry, and I lose it. I of just course. start bawling, and um, you know, she's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't even think about that. And I just said, no, it's good. It's my, my little pup yeah. saying hi to me. That's her. Yep. I mean, I know some people are like, you're nuts. But that, no. in my mind, it was so comforting to hear her name. No, I totally relate. I know um, about the time I split with my first husband and he moved out, uh, my, it, was, it was actually Memorial Day weekend. And he moved and took whatever all the furniture he was taking on Friday. And my dog died on Monday. I could deal with the furniture being gone. I thought, I'll go get the banana chaise lounge. I have yeah. a great beachfront property here. And the dog died. I cried for three days. Oh, I know. So, yeah. It is heartbreaking. And going through it, anytime someone else goes through it, I always just reach out. And because I look at all the people who reached out to us when that happened. Yeah. And a lot of people say it's sometimes it's tougher than a, a human dying in your life. Well, I, I think particularly with dogs, because um, someone said, told me long ago, um, if you want unconditional love, don't have a child, get a dog. Mm -hmm. So true, Carolyn. Very, very true. All right, we're going to wrap up, but I do want to encourage people. Um, I say this a lot, but go to Jacksonville. And yes, go visit a great restaurant, but go learn something about 
our history here. Oh, well, we have such fun stories and fun mm-hmm. ways of learning it. So we would love to share it with you. Yeah, and some really scandalous stories, too. A few of those. Yes. Good times. <laughs> okay, final three. Best advice you've ever been given? Well, I've been given some very good advice over the years. Some I've taken, some I should have taken. What actually stands out in my mind is going to sound fairly mundane, but it was my father saying, stand up straight. Oh, that's excellent advice. And part of it is I'm tall. I was for years the tallest girl in the class. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the tendency, of course, is to slump. So you kind of blend in. And not be seen. And not be seen. But I've learned there are benefits to being seen that sometimes it provides opportunities you might not have otherwise. And also, being able to see over other people, you can see things that they can't. Exactly. And there's also um, being tall and owning that being tall. Mm -hmm. It's an air of confidence. True. And I I just love that in a person. Not cockiness, but confidence. confidence. Yeah. Okay, if you ever left this place, Southern Oregon, uh, what would you miss the most? What would bring you back here? Um, oh, as part of the reason we came here, um, it, because it has, it, I'll, I'll say it has everything. It has culture, it has educated people, it has medical, it has all these wonderful outdoor activities. I was, when I was actually reminded, um, I, I write a, a regular column for the Jacksonville Review called Pioneer Profiles, and the most recent one I did was on Judge William Colvig, who lived in Jacksonville for 25 years, but then became um, the initially president and executive director of the Medford Commercial Club. And he was recognized as being one of the biggest promoters of the whole valley, particularly during the orchard boom. Mm. And at one point, he was down in Los Angeles and was asked to address the Los, the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce. And he had been listening to them extol all of the virtues of Los Angeles. And he says, well, and what is the Rogue Valley like? He says, the best I can do is tell you a story. It's like the, the, there was a group of people from L.A. who went to, to heaven, and they're walking through heaven, and they're admiring everything there and saying how much it reminds them of things back home in Los Angeles. And then they came to this group of people who were chained, and they said, why is anyone in heaven having to be chained? And they said, well, those are from the Rogue Valley, and if we didn't chain them, they would go back. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I love that. That's a good story. It's a good story. Yeah, there's something about this place. There's something about the place. I like it. It's a little gem. Um, Final meal and final drink. What would that look like for you? Oh, that one's one's really tough because Mm -hmm. I'm a fairly adventurous eater. Oh, good. And the only things I would really rule out out would be thousand-year-old eggs and sheep's eyeballs. Um, (laughs) Thousand-year-old eggs? They're very, very salty, sulfury, tasty. Um, It would probably be something to do with fish or seafood. Okay. I would have a hard time. I would I would probably choose one of the local restaurants, but I would have a really hard time choosing between Gogi's Pacific Northwest Eggs Benedict with smoked salmon, mm. or back porch barbecues fish tacos with extra aioli sauce, mm. or the Jacksonville Inn seafood curry, 
for umi sushi's yaka, uh, yakisoba seafood combo. I okay. mean, it's like... And, and the appropriate wine or beer to go with it, of course. Of course. <laughs> and here's the thing. The beauty of this question is you ha you can have all of that because it's your final day. That's right. So just stop up. You can do brunch at Gogi's. I can. I can just gorge. <laughs> Be a glutton. I'm your... not going to worry about my weight after that. No, not at all. <laughs> Carolyn Kingsnorth, super fun conversation. And thank you so much for opening up to me and talking to me. Um, you were emailing back and forth and you said, why would you want to interview me? I'm I'm not interesting, and I highly disagree. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate you telling your story to us. If you're listening to this podcast and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. We are also on Google Play and Stitcher. You can check out the video portion of this podcast at ktvl.com. Just click on Features and then Off Script. Once again, Carolyn Kingsnorth, thank you so much. And thank you, Trish. Thank you.